Thanks for tuning in to the Three Strands podcast. You're about to hear an episode from our Sunday morning worship service. To learn more about Three Strands, visit our website, threestrands.church. Anyway, we're in the fifth part of this series, finishing up today, called Playing Games When Fun Turns Fatal. And uh, we've talked about uh, the first week, if you were here, we talked about greed using the game Monopoly. And then we talked about forgiveness using the game Sorry. And then we talked about lust using the game Risk. And last week, uh, we talked about the topic of idolatry using the game of life. And we're going to finish this thing up today uh, with the topic of self-righteousness from using the game of Clue. And uh, I can never finish up a series without thinking of this story that years ago, Opie encouraged me one day. I was teaching... (laughs) He knows, he knows where this is going. I was teaching through the book of Philippians, it's like a seven-week series, and uh, it was right before I came up to teach about, I don't know, it's been at least six, seven years ago, and he comes up and he said it just like this, when is this thing going to be over? <laughs> it wasn't like, I'm enjoying it so much, I'm just going to cry when it's over. It was like, please, can we be done? So uh, if you've enjoyed this series, it's over after today, okay? If you've not enjoyed it, it is done after today, so... Anyway, as many of you know, I'm a huge sports fan. I've always loved competition. I'm not really into participation trophies, you know. I think there are winners, and I think there are losers. Uh, Second place is the first loser I was taught growing up, and, you know, I've come to believe that somewhat. But you think about sports and boxing, uh, if you knock a guy out, you win, right? In basketball, if you score more points than the other team, you win the game. And so competition, by definition, it demands comparison. So I'm super competitive, but I've raised two boys to be as competitive, if not more so, than I am. Uh, We've we've been playing pickleball. We set up a pickleball court in our driveway, and it has gotten intense over the past few weeks at times. And uh, since then, I've developed this condition that's a distant relative to, like, tennis elbow. It's called pickleball elbow. And it's been killing me. I'm not lying. It hurts, but I'm just getting old, I think. But I don't know about you. Maybe you're competitive as well. And maybe your competitive spirit has helped you in life by by allowing you to separate yourself from the pack or maybe to get ahead of the game. And so maybe you struggle just to keep your competitive spirit in check uh, within its proper context. Did you know that Jesus interacted with people who had that same struggle? He did. Take a look at it in Luke chapter 18 in verse 9. That's where we're going to be at today. It says this, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness, and they scorned everyone else. So Jesus here is about to tell a story to some self-proclaimed winners who looked down on all of the losers around them. And everywhere Jesus went, he encountered people who thought that they were morally superior to everybody else. And one group that did this more than anybody was called the Pharisees. And what these Pharisees would do is they would make up their own rules apart from God's rules, or they would add to God's rules. And then when they kept them, they would just pat themselves on the back. They were kind of like professional good people. The problem is they weren't really all that good. Jesus 
used probably the harshest language that he ever used when he was confronting these people, the Pharisees, on their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness. But man, these Pharisees, when you read through the Bible, they were super confident, even cocky when it came to being good. But, but it just begs the question, how would somebody come to the conclusion in a morality competition that they were the winners? How would they come to that conclusion? Well, the answer is simple, and it's in one word, and that word is comparison. Comparison. They looked around at everybody else, and, and they thought, well, compared to them, those losers, I must be a winner because I'm way better than they are. And you and I, we have all been around those kinds of people, haven't we? You know, you know this pride of moral superiority, it's ugly. It's very ugly when you see it on display. And that's probably why Mark Twain said this about someone he knew. He said, they were good in the worst sense of the word. Guys, the truth is that self-righteous people are easy to identify as long as they're not the person looking in the mirror. Then it can be hard to see, can't it? And, and that's probably why Jesus would often tell these stories called parables, because parables were kind of the equivalent to Jesus holding up a mirror for us to see who he's talking about. So this morning, I just kind of want to let Jesus hold up the mirror and kind of help us to see today what he's talking about in this passage. Here we go. Verse 10. It says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. And the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. Just kind of picture this in your head. He said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that, that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector just stood at a distance, dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow and he said, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. Who is it in this story that Jesus wants us to identify with? I mean, some of us have read this story so many times in our lives, especially if you grew up in church, that we have a tendency to be like, Thank you, God, that I'm not like the Pharisee in this story. Right? I mean, thank you that I'm not like that arrogant, self-righteous Pharisee, which is super ironic because the prayer that the Pharisee prayed was, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. But somehow we don't even notice the hypocrisy. Guys, the pride of moral superiority is so prevalent that we oftentimes don't even realize that, listen, when we are participating in it, but we all do at times. D don't believe me? Thank you, God, that I'm not like those ignorant people that didn't get the vaccine. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those ignorant people who did get the vaccine. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those people who watch CNN. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those people who watch Fox News. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those Republicans. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those Democrats. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those Duke Blue Devil fans. Well, okay, that one's for real, okay? I mean that one. That's true. I wish Michelle was here to hear that. So anyway, 
But listen, the the fire of self-righteousness is fueled by the gasoline of comparison. The the, the Pharisee in this story, he had such a high level of self-confidence before God because of the good things that he had done compared to what other people did. Especially people like this conveniently placed tax collector. I mean, compared to that guy, he looked pretty good. And did you notice that the tax collector in this story, he takes on an entirely different posture? It says that he stands at a distance. He won't even look up. And he beats his chest. And guys, he knows that the only comparison worth making is not to other people, but to God and to God's standard. I mean, this tax collector knows that he will never, ever be able to measure up to that standard. His only hope is that if he throws himself upon the mercy of the court. He knew that. He knew that his only hope was if God was merciful to him. Which creates the contrast in the story, which is exactly what Jesus was doing, trying to do by by telling the story. So then Jesus decides to kind of land the plane. He closes out the story in an incredibly controversial way. When he said this in verse 14, he said, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. And here it is. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now now that word justified, it means to be declared righteous. It's not just being declared not guilty, but it's being declared innocent. Okay, it's a a big Bible word there. It means declared righteous. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. How in the world can C.S. Lewis say that? I mean, how in the world could Jesus say what, what he did in this story? I mean, because at the end of the day, the Pharisee really did do some good stuff. And the tax collector really did do some bad stuff. I mean, going to church is a good thing, isn't it? And being a prostitute, that's a bad thing. So how is it that Jesus could say what he said here in this story? Well, Charles Spurgeon said it best, I think. He said, the only thing that qualifies us for the grace of God is our sin. That's it. The only thing that qualifies you and I for the grace of God is our sin. In other words, listen, if it is grace that we need, then we better not be bringing anything but our sin to the table. We can't bring our good works to the table and expect grace. It doesn't work like that. And I think that we oftentimes misunderstand the game that God is playing. The Pharisee in the story, he seemed to think that like God was kind of like the judge at like a dunk contest where everybody gets a score based on their performance. But listen, if God were playing a game, it would be more like archery, where there's a target with a bullseye in the middle, a place of perfection, and we either hit or miss it. And God's standard is that you and I hit it perfectly Every single time that we never, ever miss the mark. That's God's standard. 
Because God's moral standard, guys, is, is perfection. There's no relativity. There's no comparison. It's perfection. And the tax collector in this story, he knew that. And that's why he just simply begs for mercy. It's okay. We have some Pentecostals in here. It's okay. <laughs> Let him run. In this story, you notice he just begs, doesn't he, for mercy. It's his only hope. And he knows that he doesn't measure up. He knows he's never going to measure up. And listen, sin being the archery term that it is, it means not only to miss the mark, but it also means to have a fatal flaw. And guys, it's easy to lose sight of our own moral flaws and imperfections when we're so busy being focused on the immorality of everyone else around us, isn't it? Well, one of the board games that I grew up playing was Clue. It's this murder mystery game where the entire game revolves around pointing fingers at other people, doesn't it? The entire game is just kind of making suggestions that so-and-so murdered, you know, somebody with the revolver in the billiard room or, or Colonel Mustard did it with the wrench in the kitchen until you've used this process of elimination to, to where you can confidently make an accusation where you say exactly who it was, where it happened, and, and what weapon they used. I mean, the whole game, though, is about pointing fingers, isn't it? Listen, this may be hard for some of us to hear this morning, but it needs to be said. You may have been a really good person when you look back at your life. You may have always tried to do what's right your entire life. You may have gone to church for as long as you can remember. You may have been a virgin when you got married. You may have never done drugs. Maybe you've never ever stolen anything. You've never broke the speed limit. You may have gone on mission trips. You, you may listen to worship music 24-7. You may read through the Bible every single year and listen. That's all good stuff. That's good. You're probably experiencing some really good fruit in your life because of those choices, those actions. But we need to hear this this morning. God is not impressed. He's not. We don't do those things to try and impress God. But listen, you don't, you don't have to take my word for it. Look at Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 5. It says this. We are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, in other words, the good stuff, they are nothing but filthy rags. And I'll spare us the literal interpretation of filthy rags, but just know that God is repulsed. If we think that our self-righteousness or our moral resume is grounds for his justification, for him declaring us righteous, Guys, when we bring our good works to him and then we expect him to be impressed, I think it makes God want to vomit. Listen, it says even the good things that you and I do are infected by sin. In other words, even our best efforts are flawed. You know, when we stand before God, confident, kind of like the Pharisee in the story, and you know, we're confident before him because, hey, we went to church camp every year when we were kids. 
or we've had integrity in our business dealings, and then we think that God should just roll out the red carpet into heaven for us because of those good works, I just think God is offended, and rightfully so. When we approach God with confidence in what we have done, listen, that indicates that we don't understand who he is or what he has done. When we elevate our performance, we are lowering Jesus' performance. And the Bible says that we must decrease and he must increase. And, you know, one of the ways that, that we kind of elevate our performance, we do this in a variety of different ways. But we do this by being like the Pharisee in the story. And somehow we believe that we've hit the mark, the, the bullseye of God's perfect standard through our own efforts, which, listen, it's not even possible. It's not even possible. Or what's becoming more and more prevalent in our culture nowadays is that people simply believe that there is no mark. There is no standard. There is no target in bullseye. You know, more and more people today are buying into this idea that there is no truth. That we're all winners. That everybody goes to heaven if there is one. You heard that in our culture lately? That there's no such thing as sin. And listen, people will say things like, you know, I'm sure that when I die that, that God will accept me for who I am. I mean, after all, God knows my heart. He knows my true intentions. I'm a good person. And that should be, a, be good enough for a good God. Guys, please hear me this morning. Those things could not be more opposite of what the tax collector said in this story that Jesus told. Right? You heard the story. I read it. No, it says he stood at a distance. He looked down. He beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me because why? I'm a good person. No, he said, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. Which means that this tax collector believed the statement that Paul would later write in Romans 3.23, which says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. All includes all, all of us, everyone. Now listen, I want us to consider how crazy this sounds, not just to the culture in which we live, but unfortunately to many who call themselves Christians. Because I'm afraid that some people have become so influenced by our self-help culture of moral relativism, you know, that there's no absolute truth, that they are tempted to interrupt this tax collector in the story. They, they, if this story was modern day and, and the tax collector was saying this, I'm so afraid that people in our culture would interrupt him and say, no, 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 no. You're fine just the way you are. Don't call yourself a sinner. Come on, have, have higher self-esteem than that. Come on, you, you got to have better self-worth. You do you. Doesn't that sound like our culture today? Guys, if we read this story also, and somehow you walk away thinking that the tax collector is somehow morally superior to the Pharisee, then we've missed the point there as well of the entire story. Listen, the point of this story is that both men were morally bankrupt, but only one of them knew it. Both of them were morally bankrupt, but only one recognized it. And listen, it would help you and I to just admit that, 
before the world does its own investigation and, and finds out that, hey, we're not as bad as they think we are. Listen, we're worse than they think we are. Ever thought about that? Charles Spurgeon said it best. He said, listen, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you are. Right? So let's just be real, and let's own it. I mean, listen, I think about my life, and, and for every mean-spirited, judgmental thing that some preacher has said, I've thought something nastier and more hateful. For, for every accusation of idle talk and coarse joking and gossip against fellow Christians, I've said something stupid, and I've joined in to demonstrate my hypocrisy. For every brother or sister whose moral failure has, has been exposed publicly, I've failed privately. I mean, no matter how hypocritical that Jesus' followers appear to be on the, on, uh, to those outside the faith, listen, they don't know the half of it. They don't know the half of it. If we really believe the good news that we say we believe, we need to be honest about our own brokenness and our own imperfections. And Jesus will make himself known to the world around us through that brokenness. Don't try to wear a mask and hide it. Just be real and honest and open with people. And God will use that to heal, heal the people around you. You see, we're often, well, let me back up. Let's be honest. If Jesus had told that story to us that he told back then, and we were the tax collectors, okay? We may have prayed something like this, if I were guessing. If we were the tax collectors, we may have prayed this. God, thank you that I'm not like that self-righteous Pharisee over there, so full of himself. Thank you that, that I'm so aware of my own moral imperfections and that I'm so much more spiritual and humble than him. I mean, thank you, God, for showing me that I'm not like that self-righteous religious guy over there. Right? See, we're often so thankful that, that we're not self-righteous, that in doing so, we reveal our self-righteousness. I mean, it's a sneaky sin. You and I, we can turn everything into a competition, even sin. We can compete to see who's the most authentic or the most broken. And at the same time, we can turn our good works into a competition to, to see who's the most holy and who's the, the most spiritually mature. We can make a competition out of anything. And so listen, what I'm saying today is this. It would do us good to stop competing for the moral high ground. It would do us good to just admit that, listen, apart from Jesus, we are all just morally bankrupt. And that's what Jesus said to us in John 15, 5. He said, hey, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. But he said this, apart from me, you can't do anything. In other words, you're, you're bankrupt apart from me. I read a book uh, back when I was in college by a guy named Brennan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel, which helped me deal with the sin of self-righteousness. And he since went on to be with the Lord, but, but the last book he ever wrote was called All is Grace. And in it, he, he tells this story. 
It says the phone rings and you're given a choice to answer it or not. And maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe I should have just sidestepped it like a landmine. But I answered it and it turned out to be a foghorn of bad news. The voice on the other end belonged to someone I loved. My sister spoke two words. Mom died. It was February of 1993. And after we hung up, I was aware of nothing but a single emotion. I mean, I could tell you that I felt sadness or regret or fear, but I vowed to be ruthlessly honest with myself in these pages. After Jerry called, all I thought was, God, what a bother. I packed a bag and I booked a flight and I was living in New Orleans at the time, my sister in Belmore, New Jersey. My mother had been in an Alzheimer's facility for two years, not far from where Jerry lived. My mother had completely lost her memory but I hadn't. My past with her created a core of pain in myself that I had wrestled with most of my life. I flew into New York and I took a cab to Belmore and I stayed in a motel near the church where the funeral was to be held. And I stopped at a liquor store before checking in and I bought a quart of their cheapest scotch. While others arranged flowers and pressed their shirts, I locked the door of my room, I pulled the curtains to, and I drank. I wanted to forget, but unfortunately, the scotch only slowed the approach of my memories. Eventually, thoughts of my mother broke through. The tone of her voice, her sayings, and mostly the shame. But like a good alcoholic, I kept drinking and drinking and drinking. And I thought it was my only defense. Eventually, everything faded to a shade deeper than black. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Surely the priest spoke these words over the casket of my mother, Amy Manning. But I can't be certain because I missed my mother's funeral. I was back at the motel, waking up from a blackout, trying to remember where I was. The fact was that I stood in a motel room in Belmore, New Jersey, but the truth was I was in some distant place having squandered my mother's last respects with drunkenness. In that moment, I felt the most profound shame in my entire life. My God, what kind of man am I? How could that have happened? I didn't visit my mother's gravesite later that day. The reality is I've never visited it. If you hear that story and you think that's appalling, if you sit and wonder how a lifelong Christian could behave in such a way, well, listen, you ain't heard nothing yet. Listen to the words of one of the greatest Christians who have ever lived in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, starting in verse 15, where he says this, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. And so if I can't be trusted to figure out what's best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my, my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I mean, I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. 
My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I mean, I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebels, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Guys, the man who wrote those scriptures was the Apostle Paul. He wrote about half of our New Testament. And you can tell from those scriptures that Paul found absolutely no confidence in his own behavior, good or bad. He had no confidence in his righteousness compared to other people around him. And how does the old hymn go? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, because all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Listen, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, because all other ground is sinking sand. Our confidence is not found in our moral achievements. Our confidence is found in Christ alone. I'd like to give Brennan Manning the final word this morning when he said this. How is it then that we've come to imagine that Christianity is primarily in what we do for God? How has this come to be the good news of Jesus? Is the kingdom that he proclaimed to be nothing more than a community of men and women who go to church on Sunday and they take an annual spiritual retreat, they read their Bibles every now and then, vigorously oppose abortion, they don't watch X-rated movies, never use vulgar language, they smile a lot, hold doors open for people, they root for their favorite team, and, and they get along with everybody? Is that why Jesus went through the bleak and bloody horror of Calvary? Is that why he emerged in shattering glory from the tomb? Is that why he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church? to make nicer men and women with better morals? The gospel is absurd and the life of Jesus is meaningless unless we believe that he lived, died, and rose again with but one purpose in mind and that is to make brand new creations. 
Not to make people with better morals, but to create a community of prophets and professional lovers, men and women, who would surrender to the mystery of the fire of the Spirit that burns within, who would live in greater fidelity to the omnipresent Word of God, who would enter into the center of it all, the very heart and the mystery of Christ, into the center of the flame that consumes and purifies, sets everything aglow with peace, joy, boldness, and extravagant, furious love. This, my friends, is what it really means to be a Christian. Our religion never begins with what we do for God. It always starts with what God has done for us. The great and wondrous things that God dreamed of and achieved for us in Christ Jesus. That's what it's about. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for each of us in this room. We're all guilty. We've all committed the sin of self-righteousness where we look around at those that we think we're better than and and just kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, thank God I'm not like them. But Father, we're bankrupt. The truth is we are morally bankrupt without you. So God, would you just teach us that this morning, that our only hope is not in anything we've done or anything that we're going to do. Our only hope is in Jesus. He's it. He's the reason we're here. And Father, I pray that not one person will walk out these doors thinking that we're going to get into heaven based on our good works. It's only by the blood of Jesus and your mercy that you have on us. Please let that resonate in our hearts this morning so some of us would just give up and stop trying so hard. That we would just simply walk with you day to day and and just do life with you and live in a relationship with you. Father, forgive us where we've tried to get there on our own. You never designed it like that. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the gift of Jesus that makes the way possible. And in the best way we know how this morning, we want to tell you that we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening in on the Three Strands podcast. If you've never visited us in person, we'd love to meet you face-to-face. We gather every Sunday, 11 a.m. at the McCreary County Park Building. We hope to see you soon.